Wake the Dead with Sean McCann. Welcome to another edition of Wake the Dead with Sean McCann. Today I'd like to continue on my exploration into Kubrick. We're going to title this one Episode 2, I guess. Make it simple. I think the last time I spoke, I uh, brought up the fact that no one seemed to notice what where the rainbow ends means. Seemed like a big clue that Kubrick was really laying on thick. And I find it remarkable that no one seemed to notice that. There's a few more like that. I'm gonna open today's episode talking about Nightingale. So, one of the main characters, we meet him in a very early scene of the film, Eyes Wide Shut. This is the piano player at Ziegler's party. He's wearing a white tux and Bill Harford recognizes him while dancing with Alice on the dance floor and says to Alice, I went to medical school with that guy. She says, oh, he plays pretty good for a doctor. And he says, he's not a doctor. He dropped out. We'll talk about why he dropped out later. <laughs> so anyway, Bill and Alice separate Alice goes to the bathroom. Bill goes and meets his college buddy. So he goes over to the stage, and the way that he introduces himself or brings attention to his arrival is he says the word, Nightingale. And then he says the guy's name, Nick Nightingale. It's funny how Kubrick gives us this, you know. It's emphasized and it's repeated. So what does does nobody seem to recognize that Nightingale might be a key? I thought I would investigate. So if uh, every story from the past 2,000 years that involves nightingales is a reference to a myth, a Greek myth 
about the rape of Philomela. Ovid, who I spoke of the last episode discussing Kubrick, Ovid is actually discussed, comes from the mouth of the Hungarian when he's speaking to Alice. So Kubrick gives us two references to Ovid. The story of the rape of Philomela is in the sixth book of the Metamorphosis. So the story is, here, let's see. Philomela, after being raped and mutilated by her sister's husband, Tereus, obtains her revenge and is transformed into a nightingale, a bird renowned for its song. Because of the violence associated with the myth, the song of the nightingale is often depicted or interpreted as a sorrowful lament. The most complete rendering of this story of Philomela can be found in Book 6 of Metamorphosis by Ovid. So the story goes... We can have a little lesson here. According to Ovid, in the fifth year of Prosceny's marriage to Tereus. Here, let's see if we go. Okay. Okay. According to Ovid, in the fifth year of Prosceny's Marriage to Tereus, king of Thrace, the son of Ares, she asked her husband to let me at Athens, my dear sister, see, or let her come to Thrace and visit me. Tereus agreed to travel to Athens and escort her sister, Philomela, to Thrace. King Pandion of Athens the father of Philomela and Prosony was apprehensive about letting his one remaining daughter leave his home and protection and asks Tereus to protect her as if he were her own father. Tereus agrees. However, Tereus lusted for Philomela when he first saw her, and that lust grew during the course of the return voyage to Thrace. Arriving in Thrace, he forced her into a cabin in the woods and raped her. After the assault, Tereus threatened her and advised her to keep silent. Philomela was defiant and angered Tereus. In his rage, he cut out her tongue and abandoned her in the cabin. Rendered unable to speak because of her injuries, Philomela wove a tapestry that told her story and had it sent to Prosony. 
Prosne was incensed, and in revenge she killed her son by Tereus. Itis, or Itlos, boiled him and served him as a meal to her husband. After Tereus ate Itis, the sisters presented him with the severed head of his son, and he became aware of their conspiracy and his cannibalistic meal. He snatched up an axe and pursued them with the intent to kill the sisters. They fled but were almost overtaken by Tereus. In desperation, they prayed to the gods to be turned into birds and escape Tereus's rage and revenge. The gods transformed Prosony into a swallow and Philomela into a nightingale. The nightingale is referenced from Sophocles to William Shakespeare. The story is retold and reworked. And the nightingale itself, the bird, only sings at night. And its greatest song, its most powerful, heartfelt song, is the last song it sings just before the dawn. So, why is Kubrick using this nightingale? Seems like a pretty normal movie so far. Married couple, they get ready, they go to a party, they have a babysitter, whatever. Why would Kubrick be using nightingale reference? Because he's telling us that this story is about a sorrowful lament. It is about violent rape and torture. And it's about secrets. It's also about transformation. Next, I'd like to talk about the bathroom scene. Not the first bathroom scene, the one where Bill is neglecting to look at his wife. He's not even looking. His eyes are wide shut. No, no, no. Not that scene. The scene upstairs from the party in Ziegler's bathroom. We walk in, it's a expansive, luxuriant room, and Ziegler is pulling up his pants because he just finished his business. And there's a sprawled naked woman on red. This is also the moment when we discover the other huge red thing in the room is the painting on the wall behind Ziegler's head from the odd angle down low on the ground 
looking up at Ziggler's head, fully covering the frame, is Christiane Kubrick's painting Paula on red six months. This painting is mirroring the real life. Naked woman on red. And that's, that naked woman is pregnant with information. And if you look at the framing that Kubrick gives us, Ziegler's lips are placed right where Paula's vagina would be. This pregnant message that Paula is carrying in the paintings will be spoken through Ziegler's lips, born into the world. We'll talk more about that happening later on. So now we see the, the symbolism is really starting to overlap and interweave. It's not just this movie. It's like a puzzle piece. And sure, you can watch it straight through, just normal. Or you can take certain cues that Kubrick gives you, and you can line this movie up with itself. It is self-synchronizing. I know it sounds weird. Basically, at about 17 and 17 minutes and 50 seconds in, Ziegler, after Bill speaks with Mandy, and Mandy is coming to, and she's becoming more awake. He says to Ziggler, I think you better keep here, keep her here another hour and then have somebody drive her home. And Ziggler looks at his watch. He says, another hour? Like that. Really, really focusing on another hour and pointing at his watch. Now, I took that as another cue. So, what does that mean, another hour? Well, I took the, the ticker of the time stamp and I brought it ahead exactly to one hour, 17 minutes, and 50 seconds. And I let it play. And that is the exact moment when Ma at the ritual when Mandy is kissing Bill. Mask to mask, that's the moment. And I thought, wow. And then I skip it back to 1750. And then you see Bill standing there with his finger over his lips. Like he's very uncomfortable. Like he had just kissed someone and he's trying to cover it up. He did the same thing later on 
when um, I forget her name, the woman who proclaims her love to Bill after her father dies, she plants a kiss right on his face, and then her fiance comes in the door, and Bill is real nervous, and he covers up his lip with his finger. Like he's almost trying to wipe his mouth clean. That's the same motion that he does right when you pull it back to 1750. Obviously, these two scenes are connected. Kubrick is telling us, he told us then that this is the same girl, Mandy. So what happens if you skip it ahead one more hour? Because I figured, why not? If you skip it ahead to two hours, 17 minutes and 50 seconds, that is the scene in the billiard room with Ziggler. When Ziggler describes... You want me to tell you who those people are? I'm not going to tell you who they are. But if I told you, you wouldn't sleep so good at night. And then when that moment happens, Kubrick pans, gives us a wider angle. And then suddenly we can see these portraits above the pool table. These portraits have information just like Paula on red. If you look into them further, you will see. So if you look at the head of the pool table, as if it were a dining room table, you look at the head of the table up above this table, which is red. And if you've seen Room 237, a documentary about The Shining, they describe how Kubrick how Kubrick uses the red table and relates it to the red carpet in the ritual. It's a visual reminder. It's a cue, an element. So we have, since we know that this red table is the red carpet, and Ziegler taps his cue ball on the table like Red Cloak task taps his wand staff on the rug, the carpet, the magic carpet. <laughs> that establishes that is related to the carpet. So now we look up above the carpet, and who's looking down on the carpet? is a portrait of a gentleman with a hunting dog and a tricorn hat in his right hand. This tricorn hat relates to the moment when Bill walks into the ritual. He looks up at the balcony, at the man above the red carpet, and this masked individual nods at him with his tricorn hat. 
mask. And it's even emphasized by the wife's mask, which also has three points and little bells on the end of each one. This makes us pay attention to the three-point hat. This relates it to the portrait in Ziegler's billiard room. This effectively is telling us that Ziegler was the one wearing the tricorn hat mask. And Ziegler's ancestor, the one in the painting, also wore that mask. And they have been doing that ritual for aeons. There's another important moment when Bill is walking around in the ritual and he comes into this main room and on the wall is a portrait of a man and the frame of the portrait takes up a good big portion of the wall around it. It's as if this whole wall is dedicated to this portrait painting. And all of these people, they're all fucking in front of this painting. And it's as if the individual in the painting is watching with approval. This is his hall. And then if you look above that painting, you see three British royal crests. Well, I don't know if they're royal, but they're knight, knightly crest. I don't know the exact terminology. There's three of them. I tried looking them up, but it's tough to, to figure out what what's what. What's family? What? Whose family is what with these? But it's basically there are these crests that are there, and then above the crests is a balcony with masked, robed individuals up top, and behind them is backlight, so that they are silhouetted, and it brings attention to the silhouettes up above, looking down. That's another visual cue that relates to the billiard room later on. In your mind, your subconscious mind will make those connections of above the table, above the carpet, you know. And what other movies use portraits? Well, there's a, a big glaring one is Lolita. The very opening scene, Humbert, Humbert, with a gun, is shooting Quilty as Quilty is offering Humbert to save his own life, offering Humbert a spot in a yellow chair to witness murders. Like it's a thrill. Like it's something to offer. He says to he says to Humbert, there are people you can use them as furniture. Use people as furniture. And then the specific piece of furniture that he's talking about 
is yellow. And he says that you can brag to your friends the chair is yellow. Brag to your friends that you got to witness murders. <laughs> That's the kind of evil that Humbert is shooting. As Quilty crawls up the stairs, he hides behind a portrait. And Humbert shoots through the portrait. This is telling us the rich, pedophile, elite scumbags are behind the portraits. They are in the portraits. And, I mean, in that scene, we get to see a ping-pong table. <laughs> I mean, they're angry over one of them stole the love of an underage girl from the other one. <laughs> um, it's total evil. So, what other movie has billiard tables in it? How about Clockwork Orange? Clockwork Orange has big speakers on the pool table just below Alex's room. And the, the guy that's playing the music is getting revenge for the rape and murder of his wife. For the sorrowful lament that Alex caused in his life. He's using speakers on a billiard table to drive him crazy and drive him right out the window to death. But Alex survives. Still, those elements are related. So, let's talk a little bit about the ritual itself. If you watch the, uh, the priest, if you will, Red Cloak, as he's named in the title credits, that gentleman, he circumnambulates the circle of women in a counterclockwise fashion while um, using a incense device on a chain um, that the same as they do in Catholic Church where they they waft it around and that's that's like uh, spreading the spell of the word that's being said like it's it's like uh, smudging basically you know like how um, some people smudge to, to do certain things depending on what is in what the smoke is uh, you know 
is important for their ritual. So he's going in a counterclockwise fashion. That's called Wittershins. It's a Scottish word. And it's uh, Wittershins is casting the magic circle backwards. It denotes the left-hand path. So if you have an altar or a center point focus of your ritual and you circumnambulate or you walk in a circle around it in a clockwise fashion that puts the altar on your right side at all times and clockwise is the way that a sundial works so it's basically clockwise is considered working with nature with the sun um, when witches or when people stir their I mean people that are aware of this stir their brew uh, they they stir with a clockwise fashion because that's nature is working with their spell and that that uses the forces of rhythm in the in a positive way uh, Wittershins is counterclockwise uh, so when the when the since the Sun makes shadows that move clockwise counterclockwise is seen as working against the Sun anti-nature negative unlucky evil so if you're gonna circumnambulate your altar in a counterclockwise fashion that is gonna place the altar on your left side that's why it's titled the left hand path because they work in a counterclockwise fashion against the forces of nature uh, a number of folk myths and legends speak about gods goddesses heroes in general forcing people to work or forcing people or things to move counter to the Sun in order to bring about chaos and turmoil the act of moving counterclockwise is to provoke the natural course of the world or go against the natural world this causes havoc destruction and generally negative things to happen drawing a circle for ritual is always made in a clockwise motion using incense to clear or cleanse the area to consecrate it for an object to consecrate it or an object for use or a piece of land it's always done clockwise motion to bring forth a positive flow of energy so that red cloak priest was working in a counterclockwise fashion bringing about a negative force of energy and he was consecrating that space and those women those objects 
for use. Like I was saying earlier, stirring ingredients in a cauldron or pot for your on your stove is a ritual for a ritual celebration feast are all done in a clockwise motion to ensure the natural course of divine light as if this divine light is stirred into the mix. Clockwise is about having time, creation, the positive flow of energy, the right way to circumvent the wheel of life for the highest good of all concerned. Consequently, moving in the opposite direction is about restricting time in some fashion, destruction, the negative flow of energy, and grinding against the wheel of creation. Grinding against the wheel of life to create chaos. Chaos magic focuses a lot on implementation of counterclockwise movement. This isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes a magician needs to work against the clock or destroy a certain thing. But think about what is that, what is Red Cloak working against? The natural flow of creation. What are those women doing? They're being inseminated. So why would this priest be consecrating this land or object for use, the woman? Why would that happen like that? So do you folks, are you folks familiar with Aleister Crowley? He wrote a book, his only fiction book. It's named Moon Child. When you read that book, you'll see that the entire premise is about impregnating, finding a perfect woman to impregnate at a certain time with certain energies and they influence that pregnancy throughout its entire course of development to influence the soul that inhabits the flesh of the baby being created. Another term for this book uh, is the second title is called the butterfly net in occultism butterflies are related to the human soul if you think about it what else could this magician be doing besides influencing the insemination of these women in this ritual?
I can't think of any other reason he'd be working against the forces of nature. He's pulling down certain souls, not allowing them to go to the light, bringing them back down to be incarnated again into the body of their choice. If you understand about monarch mind control programming, I kind of touched on it before. Monarchs make more monarchs. So they can impregnate their slave and the child will have the same disassociative traits that they desire for disassociation, for DID disorder, dissociative identity disorder, to shatter their, their consciousness into a million different um, identities that can each be programmed through hypnosis. It's a system and certain certain families that have that have had that epigenetic imprint gives them they are ripe to have more babies that will do the same so if you think about that expand that out and why wouldn't the elite, after they're done with the, the slave woman, after they've used her up and destroyed her when she's dead, they know there's more beyond. They don't mourn her death. They can capture that soul and bring it back down with dark ritual a butterfly net ritual to impregnate that poor soul to to uh to impregnate the slave who's getting who's in the ritual uh cons uh controlled mind controlled slave and inseminate her with with the seed of their choose of their elite seed is what gets put into these women and no one gets no one knows i mean i guess it's a big thing who chooses who's the first choice so right after the ritual the it's a big deal when when the the woman, the young prostitute, poor soul woman, she goes and finds one of the masked men and chooses him like it's an honor. Because most likely, the first one to get into her body, to get it, to get his semen in there, is most likely going to be the first one to impregnate her but the fact that they get traded around 
and then everybody fucks those poor women. That way, no one knows who is the father. And that way, they can remove themselves from this guilt. Because that baby that they're creating is the next generation of slave whores for their rituals. It's a cycle. So why wouldn't they recycle the souls of the slaves that they've worked on all these years and think they own? Why wouldn't that be the case? I think Kubrick is aware of these things. I think maybe he did stumble into something like this. Or he knows someone who did. Heard a rumor about Harrison Ford stumbling into one of these things. But I'm not so sure. I think Kubrick knew. And I think he was trying to reveal this to us. Uncovering under every rock of that movie, there's evil. Human slavery. Domination. Evil. But to everybody else, it looks like normal doctor family. Oh, they're happy. Oh, they're just having marital issues. No one seems to notice that Helena gets stolen at the end. <laughs> I mean, it is mentioned in Room 237. I think it's mentioned in Room 237. Where Helena is pushed off down the aisle in a busy toy store. Every parent knows every parent that's lived through the 80s and the 90s, they know to watch your kid in a busy store because you'll lose your kid and kids get lost and they cry and kids get kidnapped and taken away. That is common knowledge. Everyone knows you watch your kid in a busy store. What was the last moment of that film? In this busy store, they were nose to nose, full face, all their attention on each other. She distracted him with sex while they stole Helena. His eyes are wide shut. He thinks he stumbled into some murder sex party he doesn't recognize that his own wife and daughter are cult slaves he's just a warm family to raise them up in while they can steal her away and program her In the beginning, when we first see Helena, 
She's wearing white butterfly wings. She's the pure soul. And she's got a ballerina's tutu. And she asks to stay up and watch the Nutcracker. <laughs> she, the child in the Nutcracker gets whisked away to another land, a dream world over the rainbow, where the dolls come alive like a mask, moving, animate. <laughs> okay, getting back to Wittershins. <laughs> I go off track. It's tough. There's so much going on with this movie. All his movies. So it's a Scottish term which translate to opposite course or against the way. It refers to a left-hand motion in which you are always turning to the left. Diosil, pronounced diosil, D-I-O-S-I-L, with the sun has positive righteous associations. The Celts venerated the sun. To this day, being left-handed is bad luck. And left-hand path refers to black magic. Wittershins is commonly used in necromancy. Necromancy is the conjuration of the spirits of the dead. Necromancy is similar to moonchild workings in that it influences non-corporeal spirits. Reincarnation naturally weds these two traditions together. Necromancy involves communication with the dead either by summoning their spirits as apparitions or raising them bodily. Commonly for the purpose of divination, to discover hidden knowledge, to bring someone back from the dead, or to use the dead as a weapon, sometimes referred to as death magic. In the present day, necromancy refers to manipulation of the dead, often facilitated through the use of ritual magic, skeomancy. Necromancy evolved from shamanism, which calls upon the spirits or ghosts of ancestors. Classical necromancers address the dead with a mixture of high-pitched squeaking and low droning, comparable to the trance state mutterings of shamans. Practiced in East ancient Egypt, Babylonia, Greece, and Rome. So what was that they were playing on, this, on the thing? They were playing the low droning chants of a of a uh, monk and this this monk's chants were played backwards the monk's chants were wittershins anti-nature 
The music is by an artist named Jocelyn Pook. She used a Romanian chant. It is played backwards. This is the translation in English written forward. And God told to his apprentices, I give you a command to pray to the Lord for the mercy, life, peace, health, salvation, the search, the leave, and the forgiveness of the sins of God's children. The ones that pray, they have mercy, and they take good care of this holy place. So think about that. Take that sentiment and mirror it backwards. That is what they are using for this ritual. A little addition, what I forgot to mention about the tricorn hat, the style of hat, it was popular during the 18th century, falling out of style by 1800, though not called a tricorn hat till the mid-19th century. It was worn not only by the aristocracy, but also common civilian dress. The style served two purposes. First, it allowed stylish gentlemen to show off their wigs and thus their social status. Second, the cocked hat with its folded brim was much smaller than other hats and could be tucked under the arm more easily when going indoors. King Louis XIV made it fashionable throughout Europe. So not only are the the two pillars surrounding Alice in the opening shot representative of the goddess. When they walk into Ziegler's party in the beginning of the movie, prominent on the wall as they walk in, and it takes, you can see Alice's eyes look at it. She's, she's looking across at it. That's the first thing she sees. And Bill walks across it, and he says, he walks across the front of it as he walks in, and he says, Victor! And Victor Ziegler replies, Alice, Bill, Alice! <laughs> because Alice is who he's excited to see. Because he and Alice have a history. So, Alice is all he's focusing on. He's kissing her face. He's looking in her eyes. He says, Jesus, look at you. You look, you look amazing. Meanwhile, Bill is not looking at her. He's unaware. So what is this star that's lit up in Christmas lights once they walk in? It is the star of Ishtar, the Lady of Heaven, Goddess of the Moon. A Babylonian goddess, Ishtar went down through seven gates into darkness to find her lover, Tammuz, and returned. Sometimes Ishtar is accompanied by dragons. She had a lion throne and a double serpent scepter. In ancient traditions, Semiramis was associated with Ishtar 
and Astarte, since the time before Diodorus. The association of the fish and dove is found at Hierapolis Bombis, the great temple which, according to one legend, was founded by Semiramis, where her statue was shown with a golden dove on her head. Now a dove is also Kulum. That's where Columbia gets her name. And if you look at the Statue of Liberty, you might recognize Semiramis. <laughs> the ancient Greek historian Diodorus reports that Queen Semiramis erected a 130-foot obelisk in Babylon and it was associated with sun worship and represented the phallus of the sun god Baal or Nimrod. Some Masonic researchers say that the word obelisk literally means Baal's shaft or Baal's organ of reproduction. It is for the reason that the obelisk also represents the, the Illuminati bloodlines. That's a quote from David Icke. Fish were originally worshipped as a symbol of Nimrod. Nimrod's birthday is December 20, 25th, Christmas Day. Fish, the symbol of fish, is associated with Nimrod. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Each priest is depicted wearing a fish head mitre. One of the names of this god in Babylon is and Philistia was Dagon. Dogfish. Well, Dag is fish. That's sorry, I read my words wrong here. Dag is fish and on is sun. So, uh, according to Diodorus, Semiramis was of noble parents, daughter of the fish goddess Derceto of Ascalon in Assyria, and of a mortal man. Derceto abandoned her at birth and drowned herself. Doves feed the child until Simas, the royal shepherd, found her. Semiramis married Onis, or Menones, one of King Ninus's generals. Her, adv her advice led him to great success, and at the siege of Bactra, she personally led a party of soldiers to seize a key point in the defense leading to the city's surrender. Ninus was so struck that he fell in love with her and tried to compel Onus to give her to him as a wife, first offering his own daughter, Soneni, 
in return and eventually threatening to put his eyes out as punishment. Onis, Onis, out of fear of the king and out of doomed passion for his wife, fell into a kind of frenzy and madness and hanged himself. Ninus then married her. Semiramis and Ninus had a son named Ninyas. After King Ninus conquered Asia, including the Bactrains, he was fatally wounded by an arrow. Semiramis then masqueraded as her son and tricked her late husband's army into following her instructions because they thought these came from their new ruler. After Ninus's death, she reigned as queen regent for 42 years, conquering much of Asia. Semiramis restored ancient Babylon and protected it with high brick wall that completely surrounded the city. She not only ruled Asia effectively, but also added Libya and Ethiopia to the empire. So where else is Semiramis found? Lolita. <laughs> You're thinking, huh? Yes. Lolita was in a high school play written by Quilty about Semiramis going to the underworld. Let's see here. At timestamp 1 hour 50 minutes 50 seconds of the film Lolita, the scene of the school play opens. Beardsley High Thespians presents The Hunted Enchanters. Admission $1 starts at 8.30 sharp. That's what it said outside the school on the sign. So... Pan, Lolita, and Semiramis are the three characters. Well, Lolita probably had a different name. But anyway, she was playing in this play. Pan, the male character, says, I stand... Pan! I mean, Crowley revered Pan. Pan is the horned god of the witches. Pan says, I stand before you, a rearsome bucky goat no more. Tremble not, little nymph. You see before you, a weary goat. The bewitcher is bewitched. Lolita says, look, Semiramis, look. And Semiramis says, yes, the great goat removeth his horns. Lolita says, let us take him to the Dark Kingdom. Semiramis says, yes. Lolita says, to the Dark Kingdom, away, away. <laughs> when the teacher speaks with Humbert right after the film, Humbert, or not after the film, after the play, Humbert is backstage trying to retrieve Lolita. And he's speaking with the teacher, and uh, her name is Sash. And 
Sash says, did you enjoy the performance? And he says, very much. I enjoyed every moment of it. She says, I wondered if the symbolism wasn't a bit heavy-handed at times. <laughs> the symbolism was a bit heavy-handed. All of these films relate. It's all one big story. Eyes Wide Shut is the reveal. That's the apocalypse. So, speaking of Semiramis and removal of a horn, Roman historians Amanus Marcellinus credits her, Semiramis, that is, as the first person to castrate a male youth into eunuchhood. Semiramis, that ancient queen who was the first person to castrate male youths of tender age, is the quote. In Armenian traditions, Semiramis had fallen in love with the handsome Armenian king Ara the Beautiful. She asked him to marry her. When he refused, in her passion, she gathered the armies of Assyria and marched against Armenia. During the battle, Semiramis was victorious, but Ara was slain, despite her orders to capture him alive. To avoid continuous warfare with the Armenians, Semiramis, reputed to be a sorceress, took his body and prayed to the gods to raise Ara from the dead. When the Armenians advanced to avenge their leader, she disguised one of her lovers as Ara and spread the rumor that the gods had brought Ara back to life, convincing the Armenians not to continue the war. In one persistent tradition, Semiramis's prayers are successful, and Ara does come back to life. During the Middle Ages, she was associated with promiscuity and lustfulness. One story claimed that she had an incestuous relationship with her son, justifying it by passing a law to legitimize parent-child marriages and inventing the chastity belt in order uh, the chastity belt to deter any romantic rivals before he eventually killed her. <laughs> The book The Two Babylons, written in 1853 by the Christian minister Alexander Hislop, was particularly influential in characterizing of Semiramis as associated with the whore of Babylon. Despite the lack of supporting evidence in the Bible, Hislop claimed that Semiramis invented polytheism and with it goddess worship. He also claimed that the Catholic Church was a millennia-old secret conspiracy founded by Semiramis and the biblical king Nimrod to propagate the pagan religion of ancient Babylon. <laughs> I mean, that, that makes sense because I grew up Catholic and I know what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, I don't know firsthand, but Jesus, <laughs> listen to me go.
<laughs> programmed to say the word Jesus. Anyway, Hislop believed that Semiramis was a consort and a mother of Nimrod, builder of the Bible's Tower of Babel. He said that Semiramis's and Nimrod's incestuous male offspring was the Akkadian deity Tammuz, and that all divine pairings in religions are retellings of this story. Tammuz, or Dumuzid, is an ancient Mesopotami Mesopotamian god associated with shepherds, who is also primary consort of the goddess Inanna Ishtar. According to Samuel Noah Kramer, toward the end of the 3rd millennium BC, kings of Uruk may have established their legitimacy by taking on the role of Dumuzid, Tammuz, as part of a sacred marriage ceremony. This ritual lasted one night on the 10th day of Akitu, the Sumerian New Year festival which was celebrated annually on the spring equinox. As part of the ritual, it was thought that the king engaged in ritualized sexual intercourse with the high priestess of Inanna, Ishtar, who took the role of the goddess. That's what that scene was telling us, where... Alice is between the two pillars. She is assuming the role of Ishtar, the goddess, in their ritual. They being the priests, she be or the you know, they being the kings, and she being the priestess. So that's what the that's what the priest's prayer is doing in the ritual. He's making the women take on the role of Ishtar. The stars of Ishtar are a representation of that so that those of us with eyes to see will notice the star of Ishtar and it will be in our mind when we watch this ritual event. So let's talk a little bit about the nutcracker. Nutcracker first performed in 1892 in St. Petersburg, Russia, was premiered as a double feature. Tchaikovsky, it was Tchaikovsky's uh, creation, and it was a double feature with his opera titled Iolanta. Iolanta reminds me of Lolita. I'm thinking that it being a double feature, it's a loose reference to Eyes Wide Shut and Lolita should be a double feature because they're related and similar and the message is the same. So, let's see. Tsar Alexander III was in attendance 
at the first performance of Nutcracker. E.T.A. Hoffman's 1816 fairy tale is what the ballet is based on. Marie, a young girl, falls in love with a Nutcracker doll whom she only sees come alive when she's asleep. Marie falls into a fevered dream in a glass cabinet when the Nutcracker and a seven-headed mouse king do battle. The mouse king brainwashes her in her sleep. She vows to love an ugly Nutcracker and he comes to life and takes her away to the doll kingdom. Walt Disney, incidentally, used Tchaikovsky's entire score for Fantasia in 1940. Pacific Northwest's ballet version includes a pedophile godfather, Dosselmeyer, who gives Marie the nutcracker and lustfully pouts when she falls in love with the doll rather than him. The Nutcracker portrays children. It is for children and makes use of children, providing the ideal showcase for ballet schools. Its overarching theme is Christmas magic. So if you know anything about Hollywood and how they, why and how they create their programs, the Disney Network creates shows, entire shows, just to have lots of young children around at the set to rape on. <laughs> so maybe that is where, you know, maybe that's related. But. You guys can look into that on your own if you like. I'm talking about something else here. <laughs> so the story of Alice in Wonderland. That is written by a pedophile. Story of the Nutcracker was written... Well, some performances of it involve a pedophile godfather. These are all related... I'm going to leave you guys with that today. Let you uh, let that soak in. <laughs> See if you can think on your own and find some things that I might have missed. If you'd like, send me an email. I love to hear it. A lot of stuff I don't agree. But if it's there and it's said, if it's in the audio or in the frame, of the picture, then it's something you got to look at because that is actually there. So have fun exploring, watch the film again and again, <laughs> and come back again and listen for more because there's plenty more that I haven't even gotten to yet. Thanks again for joining me. See you next time.